This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, goodbye natural gas stove and fireplace. A motion before Vancouver City Hall this week calls for the banning of all infrastructure that allows for natural gas hookups in new homes. Plus, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen joins us to discuss the impact social media has had on society and how we repair the damage. Plus, the new reality, BC patients begin cancer treatment in Bellingham today, a short-term solution or an indictment of our public health care system. And Succession wraps up its four seasons in a blockbuster end filled with backstabbing and scheming. Is this the end of Prestige TV? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on big tobacco and BC's ongoing lawsuit when it comes to uh, tobacco companies. In 1998, British Columbia filed the first lawsuit uh, against tobacco companies like Imperial Tobacco, Rothmans, and, and Benson and Hedges. Now, other provinces have joined in, in on the lawsuit over the years as they hope to recoup health care costs. Now, today, three national health organizations want Canada's premiers to push for initiatives to reduce smoking during settlement negotiations with the major tobacco companies. In an open letter, the Canadian Cancer Society, uh, the Canadian Lung Association, and the Heart and Stroke Foundation say government should make uh, cutting tobacco use a top priority in talks that began four years ago as part of the province's lawsuits, where they want to get this, seek a collective $500 billion uh, in damages. Joining me on to discuss the issue is Charles Aurelia. He is the advocacy manager for Canadian Cancer Society. Charles, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Why do these three national health organizations want uh, the premiers uh, to focus uh, to a certain degree on reducing smoking uh, when it comes to these settlements? Well, we know that tobacco continues to be a leading cause of preventable disease and death in in BC and Canada, uh, and it kills more than 46,000 Canadians uh, annually, as well as 5,800 British Columbians uh, every year. Uh, We also know that Smoking continues to be responsible responsible for almost 30% of all cancer deaths. So that's, that's significant. That's almost a third of all cancer deaths related to tobacco use. So it's quite important to make sure that um, uh, tobacco control measures are included as part of this uh, settlement process. In this, but would that not be accomplished just with the uh, monetary um, damage that are being see- uh, that the premiers are seeking? It's $500 billion in damages. Uh, one would assume some of that would by these respective uh, these respective uh, leaders, they would put some of that money towards uh, reducing smoking. Uh, would they not? Uh, some of that uh, would, but uh, it's, there's no guarantee exactly how much of that money would be uh, put towards uh, tobacco control measures. Um, the United States actually went through a similar process uh, where they sued tobacco companies and went through a settlement process. Uh, there was an independent fund created out of that process, as well as states were allocated funding um, from that settlement. However, not all states uh, use that use that money towards tobacco control measures. Some of that money went to general revenues, went to infrastructure and other things. So we really want to make sure that there's a, a dedicated fund um, included in the settlement process that to ensure that uh, tobacco control measures uh, continue. So that it, when you look at the the core worry. Uh, from these three national health organizations, the Canadian Cancer Society, the Canadian Lung Association, and Heart and Stroke Foundation, is that government 
settles um, and and wins a certain amount of dollars, significant amount of dollars from these tobacco companies, but it does end up in general revenue. Uh, you actually want this money dedicated specifically for reducing smoking, but also potentially cancer treatment, whatever it may be. It should be saved for the specific issue at hand rather than uh, general revenue. Correct. Um, we want to make sure that at least 10% of the distributions from the settlement uh, go to a specific independent fund uh, to reduce tobacco use. Um, we're also in hoping that the settlement includes uh, banning remaining all tobacco promotion. Uh, we're also asking governments to ensure that um, within the settlement, uh, the tobacco industry is required to make extra payments if uh, tobacco reduction targets are not met. Uh, and then finally, making sure that uh, tobacco companies are required to publicly disclose millions of uh, internal company documents that um, really, really tell what uh, the behavior has been over the past number of years. And that would, in regards to your latter comment, that would be very similar to what the United States uh, had requested and won? Yeah, very similar. In the United States, I believe they uh, uh, the settlement read, led to approximately 40 million uh pages of, of internal documents and you know that that disclosed a history of, of bad behavior from uh, the industry so you know uh, things like uh, marketing light cigarettes as safer even though they knew that uh, they were not targeting children and youth in the advertising and marketing campaigns um, those documents also show that uh, you know they, they conspired to suppress research on, on the risk of smoking, as well as invalidate public health warnings around the risk of smoking. So, really, a lot of a lot of uh, evidence there. So, we want to make sure that those documents are, are available to the public to see. Mm. Now, uh, your comments at the beginning of our conversation here was the fact that uh, you don't want these dollars to go into general revenue, but more importantly, that a significant amount of Canadians are still dying of cancer, and that's to, due to tobacco products. Uh, now, having said that. Uh, isn't it fair to say that we are still winning the battle against the smoking industry? And what I mean by that is you compared to Canadian society today, BC society today, compared to two or three decades ago, I recall in my early days as a reporter, the debates of whether or not we should be banning smoking in bars and the fact that the, the industry would, uh, would go bankrupt, and it hasn't. And that I think most people would say it's actually quite nice to go to a bar or, or uh, another establishment and not have to come out smelling like, uh, like an ashtray, and it's better for your health and there's not the secondhand smoke. Are we not winning, though, if you step back at a macro level and say, hang on, we're not perfect, we've got more to do, but we're actually heading in the right direction here? Yeah, so, uh, you know, significant progress has been made over a number of years due to policy um, initiatives over, over, you know, last uh, few decades. Uh, that being said, uh, tobacco continues to have a, a significant health cost on, on our healthcare system. Uh, in BC, uh, the province spends all, almost $700 million in healthcare costs uh, related to tobacco use. Um, we also know that. Uh, Almost around 85% of all lung cancer ca cases are directly related to uh, smoking commercial tobacco. Um, and then in Canada, uh, the number of lung cancer uh, deaths related to cancer are, are you know, are more than breast cancer, pro prostate cancer, and colorectal cancer cases combined. So tobacco still has a significant uh, impact on, on, a, on a system, uh, on a healthcare system, and in uh, the lives of British Columbians. When you're saying tobacco products, does that include vaping? Uh, for for uh, the number of uh, cancer cases, that includes 
uh, vaping. However, the settlement does not include uh, vaping itself. Um, it, this the settlement uh, process uh, happened a number of years ago when uh, vaping was still quite new. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know vaping is still still a significant concern uh, for, for British Columbians. Um, in in 2017, um, there were about a, a quarter of youth uh, vapors who uh, reported that they were addicted to vaping. That that number has increased to about a third uh, in 2022. So so. You know, this this concerns there, but this settlement process is specifically about uh, smoking. Uh, and the reason I brought up the issue of vaping, and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I, as a dad, I, I hear stories already of kids just going to the bathroom at a high school, and there's kids in there vaping, and, and it's not one school. it's Every school deals with this to a certain degree. In many ways, we aren't finished yet with reducing the amount of uh, smoking-related health challenges that we have, but vaping seems to be uh, sort of the new frontier in regards to dealing with this issue when you say a third of teens are already using it and are heavy users of it? Yeah, so um, again, as you mentioned, uh, you know, vaping vaping is still a, a significant concern. Um, you know, the, the good thing about this settlement process is that it is an opportunity for governments to recoup some of those health care costs um, that can be dedicated to uh, tobacco control measures. So, you know, once, once those settlements uh, happen, uh, the problems can also introduce additional ma- measures to combat uh, vaping. Here in BC, um, they introduced uh, a vaping tax, uh, mm-hmm. as well as um, some partial uh, bans on, on flavors. Uh, that being said, you know, again, it, it continues to be uh, something that we're, we're monitoring and, and um, looking to work with government to take action on. Any sense of what the range would be for settlement? I know $500 billion is thrown out nationally. Uh, what would that mean for British Columbia? Any sense of what you think those numbers would be? Unfortunately, in this process, uh, healthcare organizations haven't been involved uh, within within the settlement negotiations. It's really been happening behind close, closed doors uh, between provinces and big tobacco companies, which is, which is a concern because we want to make sure that these health measures are included within the settlement process. So we're really not sure but we're hoping that the province does take a lead on this issue mm-hmm. um, and and include those those public health measures. BC, you know, has demonstrated leadership on this. It was actually the first province, not only in Canada but in within the Commonwealth, to file a lawsuit against uh, tobacco companies. Uh, and uh, when it did, um, sorry, and when it did uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix was in working on the tobacco file in the Ministry of Health at the time. So, you know, there's, there's opportunities here. Mm-hmm. My final question to you. Um, New Zealand introduced the legislation or passed a law to ban for life the sale of tobacco products to anyone born after January 1st, 2009. I think that would make someone 13 years old, roughly, uh, at this point. Uh, Is this what we should be looking at where legislation should be brought in that would actually wind down the business of tobacco companies in Canada? Yeah, so there's a number of uh, policy measures that can be introduced to uh, curb the influence of, of tobacco use and, and, and smoking uh, within Canada. The settlement process is, is one example. Uh, at the federal level, uh, the federal government has introduced a cost, a tobacco cost recovery fee of $66 million, uh, which, is, which you know, recoups the cost of the federal government's uh, tobacco control strategy. Uh, as well as the, the government has set a level, a target of 
less than 5% are used for tobacco by the year 2035. So uh, it's, it's a number of incremental steps, but uh, we're hoping to make progress along the way. Charles, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to speak with you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, a former radio host who was imprisoned in Hong Kong for nearly two years is finding a new home and community right here uh, in Vancouver. Edmund Wan moved to BC last month after spending almost two years in a Hong Kong prison, uh, having admitted to charges of sedition and money laundering that rights groups Amnesty International says were politically motivated. Mr. Wan recently made uh, his first public appearance here in Canada at the annual Hong Kong Fair in early May in New Westminster. He joins us now. Mr. Wan, thank you for speaking to us today. Hi, uh, Jas. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, first of all, uh, how are you doing in your, I guess, the new home here in Canada? Um, yeah, it's, uh, this is great. Uh, I arrived uh, uh, at Vancouver for about, uh, I think, about two months' time. Mm-hmm. And uh, nearly every day I feel... I, I receive a lot of well, warm welcomes from uh, different uh, uh, ethnic groups uh, from um, in, in Canada here. So the, uh, every day is uh, is a great time for me. At least uh, I I feel the freedom that I have not enjoyed uh, in my home, Hong Kong, for uh, almost a three years time. Uh, do you think of Hong Kong every day? Yeah, yeah, I miss my home, uh, frankly. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, I, after I, re- re- I was uh, released uh, uh, on last November, I really tried very hard uh, uh, to stay at my home. But uh, it seems uh, due to a, a lot of uh, different factors, uh, uh, finally, I, I still uh, fail. I, I, I cannot uh, stay there anymore. And then... Uh, I decide to to travel around and uh, and then and then finally I reach uh, Canada, reach Can- Vancouver at mm-hmm. this moment. Yeah. Uh, what are you hearing from residents in Hong Kong today? What what is this? What's their sense of their city? Uh, I think um, the the Hong Kong is not our Hong Kong anymore. Uh, uh, most of the Hong Kong people lived in. Uh, different kinds of fears. Um, I, I just think for an example, uh, for example, the, um, uh, coming nearby, the, we have the June 4th, and then uh, it should be every year we will have uh, many activities to, to, for us to memorize uh, the, what has happened uh, 34 years ago. But uh, 
But now, uh, government, for example, every day uh, threaten us, uh, not uh, reminding anything about the June 4th. It, uh, so uh, if, if, if we still do so, uh, we, will, we will face uh, something like arrest or, or whatever. So uh, I think a lot of uh, uh, universal values like free speech, like rule of law, like democracy, like uh, even a universal suffrage, a free election, disappear in Hong Kong. Suddenly, uh, yeah, for for, uh, for the for the past three years, just very fast, very quick, uh, and uh, the Hong Kong today is not the Hong Kong we we have uh, grown up. Now, many have said that the, the that Hong Kong that you just described uh, is forever gone. Um, I'm curious as to what compelled you to speak up. Uh, you obviously had a high-profile position as a radio personality in Hong Kong, uh, and you obviously have to balance all sides. What convinced you that you needed to be an outspoken supporter of these students and this protest movement in 2019? What was within you that said, this is different, I have to come out and support these people? First of all, I, I used to be a political commentator in Hong Kong. And uh, uh, what I believe is, I just speak uh, what I believe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, particularly the movement in 2019 and 2020. Uh, it's no doubt that uh, I support the Hong Kong people because I'm one of the Hong Kong people and I support uh, the youngsters uh, I support them in different ways. Uh, if uh, friendly talking, I have fears. I I am afraid. Okay, uh, I I I uh, I was put in jail, and uh, I I know that if I stay in Hong Kong, I will maybe I will still uh, uh, arrest and arrest again. I don't I don't know. But I think uh, the fears is not enough to keep my mouth shut because uh, this is my home, and I want to um, I want to let um, the people around the world to know uh, more about the Hong Kong story. And 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 most important is this is not the story of uh, Hong Kong only. It is a story uh, 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 that can tell. Uh, to the people around the world uh, uh, up to today. And uh, uh, do we still have to play a game with, uh, with an evil? Or how to play the game with an evil? We follow their rules or they follow our rules. Uh, so I think this is very important. So uh, I just want to do a little bit. Uh, I cannot do too much, but I, I want to share my, my stories. I think my stories have some meanings to, to other people. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and also, another thing most important is I, I always remind the Hong Kong people not to forget what had happened in uh, 2019 and 2020, and there are still a lot of uh, uh, youngsters and the 47 uh, former legislators, they are still in prison. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, not forget. You, yeah. uh, I think there were, or there are uh, Hong Kong residents, 400,000 have Canadian passports. Do you see more moving here or attempting to move to Canada? Yeah, I think uh, um, I, 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 I cannot tell how much will uh, uh, go to Canada, to, to, to Toronto or, or Vancouver, but uh, 
Uh, one thing that is for sure is that uh, still a lot of Hong Kong people choose to leave Hong Kong, maybe be, um, because of many factors, maybe because of the fears, because of uh, the, the next generation. They have the, their children. They don't want their children to uh, st- uh, study in in Hong Kong because of the the damaging of the Hong Kong education, a lot of different kinds of factors, but they would choose different places like uh, UK, like Canada, like uh, US, or even Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So now, one, that's one thing for sure is that still a lot of people will, will, will choose to leave. My final question to you, we only have about a minute left. Uh, what advice would you give Canadians? Uh, we are having this debate in this country today on what our relationship with China is. Many people want, obviously, a public inquiry, a hard reset with China. Uh, many people are looking towards Australia, who they feel has given a, a good example of what we should be doing in regards to a, a hard line uh, back, uh, a hard line when it comes to our relations with China, still trading with them, but a real hard line in regards to who we are and what we are and what they can or cannot do in Canada. What's your advice to Canada in regards to dealing with the Chinese government? Uh, I just want I just want uh, the uh, Canada government uh, to think about uh, uh, to look at seriously um, the interference uh, inside Canada from the CCP government. Uh, don't own, uh, uh, if, if possible, don't just focus on uh, any uh, economic uh, sector. But uh, I think um, the, val- the, the value in Canada, how we protect uh, the, the different kinds of values, uh, freedom is not free. So uh, we, we need to protect the, 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 the values here. I think, I think uh, and also one thing is that uh, uh, for sure, the Hong Kong people that come to Canada, we will, we will give a hand. We will we can we will fulfill we will try our best to fulfill for this uh, beautiful country, Mr. Wan. We've run out of time. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jess. Well, our next guest is a former Facebook employee. Frances Haugen uh, became a well-known figure when she leaked tens of thousands of pages of internal documents and later revealing her identity on 60 Minutes in 2021. Now, she's also testified before Congress, sending shockwaves through Washington amidst an ongoing debate surrounding Facebook and other social media companies' role in spreading misinformation, uh, particularly during the 2020 U.S. election. Uh, Ms. Haugen worked as Facebook's lead product manager on the civic misinformation team initially Uh, intending to contribute to the company's leading efforts to improve user safety. Now, since revealing herself as a source behind tens of thousands of pages of leaked documents, uh, Ms. Haugen has advocated for laws in the U.S. abroad uh, and abroad that aim to make social media safer for kids. And earlier this month, McGill University Center for Media, Technology and Democracy announced Ms. Haugen is joining as Senior Fellow in Residence, where she will support its research and public engagement uh, on online safety policy and youth digital rights. And Ms. Hogan will be speaking at UBC tomorrow at 4.15, the Lou Center uh, for Global Issues, and she joins us now. Francis, thank you for speaking to us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, perhaps a snapshot. Uh, when I introduced you here, 2021 is when you when you came out and you explained why uh, it was important for us to pay attention to what was happening at Facebook. Uh, it is 2023 now. Uh, how would mm. you view social media today? Is it worse or is it the same? 
you know, it's interesting. On a, on, a, on a societal level, I think we've moved a huge distance forward. You know, we've, we've done things like Europe passed the Digital Services Act, which for the first time anywhere in the world gave us the right to ask questions of these platforms mm. and get answers. But at the same time, the platforms themselves, they haven't changed as much. You know, it doesn't matter that the Surgeon General came out of the United States and made his first advisory involving technical products, you know, software and mental health just last week. The platforms are cutting their safety budgets because they know no one can hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg keeps talking about how the year of efficiency is just so great, but he doesn't talk about how that means he does things like cut safety teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy uh, commenting on social media. Here's uh, a comment from him uh, last week. We see rates of depression and anxiety and suicide and loneliness going up among young people. And I'm concerned that social media is an important driver of that youth mental health crisis. Uh, this is the defining public health issue of our time, youth mental health. I appreciate that the technology companies have taken some steps uh, to try to, to keep kids safe, but it hasn't been nearly enough. What's at stake here is, is our kids and their future, plain and simple. Uh, so, Francis, moving forward, uh, is this a, a policy issue that, must, that has to be addressed by government? Or can we demand more from these companies? Because they certainly haven't moved much uh, Mm -hmm. since you first spoke out. Something that most people aren't aware of is that the tech companies are kind of locked in a standoff where, you know, they know things like keeping under 13-year-olds actually off their platforms moves the needle a tremendous amount in terms of teen mental health, at least according to the, the studies that have been done so far. But if you're the first company that really draws that hard line for protecting kids, you know, you're, you're giving up on the next generation of users. Or, for example, if you're the only company that, that provides tools to help kids go to bed when they want to go to bed, you know, right now a third of, t- of teenagers in the United States say they use social media till midnight or later on many weekdays. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the first company to do that, people will ask, why are you the only one doing these safety things? Are you more dangerous than other people? So I think we need some safe standard rules of the road we need you know it's just like all cars have to have seat belts all cars have to have airbags we don't need to worry about those first mover problems for cars anymore we need the same thing for social media so for social media that means that they have to be a little less lucrative in regards to doing this just a smidge you know if we were going to add up how much money they make off of kids after midnight versus how much they make up out of the first few hours those kids are online each day Companies aren't giving up that much revenue. They're just scared of being that, you know, the first mover. Where do you see Canada in this? You raised the issue of Europe, mm-hmm. and I've always seen Europe uh, as being being um, quite aggressive uh, and probably leading the world in some cases in regards to big tech and, and social media and some of the policy uh, decisions they've made. Where does Canada sit? Is it sort of like the United States? We've done a lot of mm. talking, but we haven't done enough in regards to mm. actually implementing policy. You know, it's interesting. You know, right now we look at, the, at Europe and we think they're being really aggressive. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling we're going to look back in five or ten years and say, wow, they passed one of the more moderate laws. Because what we're seeing right now is the level of suffering from kids, even from adults, it keeps going up. And so we're starting to see things like in the United States, Utah banning basically youth privacy online or Montana you know, outright banning TikTok. Mm-hmm. Canada's in this really interesting place where I think uh, they can be a world leader in terms of, you know, reinforcing that idea that we can have laws that protect freedom of speech that are moderate laws 
and then help other countries pass similar laws, mm-hmm. a, a leadership role that Canada has had many times before on other issues. I, I have a we have a fourteen year old at home, and I I actually lived through exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it is just uh, it is uh, it's tough some days in regards to their need Imagine. to be on social media uh, yeah. and making sure they're safe as well. But uh, I'm curious as to your personal mm-hmm. journey as well. You are an incredibly bright person, smart person. Uh, you your parents are both come from academia, mm-hmm. uh, engaged individual, and then to work for Facebook, one of the well known companies in the world. Talk to me a little bit about your personal journey where you go to Mm. to make change and Mm. then you decide, no, there's something wrong here and I have to speak out. So I'm I'm a little bit of an anomaly um, for the job that I had in that I have an MBA from Harvard. So I I care a lot about organizational behavior and I think it's a big part of what, you know, either leads companies to be successful or not successful and that's why I got an MBA. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Facebook, I joined Facebook when they had one of the most established most uh, renowned uh, uh, groups focused on being a responsible social actor. It was called Civic Integrity. Mm-hmm. And while I was at Facebook, they dissolved that team. And that was the moment when I realized, you know, Facebook is not going to be able to fix these problems on their own. They need the public to come and help them solve these problems. Is it solvable? Because I know um, a few weeks ago we did a segment mm-hmm. on this show talking about it was Americans actually, American parents and school boards mm-hmm. suing social media. And you had lawyers who mm-hmm. in the past have done, uh, done uh, mm-hmm. class action lawsuits uh, in regards to asbestos now looking at social media as perhaps yep. the next frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, is And you mentioned uh, Montana and a few other states as well. Mm-hmm. Is this where this is all headed then? I think the question, we, we are definitely facing a new relationship with social media. The question we should be asking is, which kind of new relationship do we want? The kinds of laws that are cutting edge are things like what the European Union is doing, where they say, hey, if companies got to test their own airbags, if they got to test their own seatbelts, I don't think parents would feel safe with their kids in those cars, right? We have oversight. We have transparency so that we're all playing by the same rules. We need those kinds of laws. Unfortunately, certain things like big tech companies like Facebook have been flooding places like Canada with lobbyists saying we can't do anything. And the reality is at some point enough kids will be harmed that we will move. So the question is moderate laws now or emotional laws like what Montana or or Utah passed in the future. Um. Should these companies be broken up? Like, like mm. I'm talking Standard Great Oil question. and some of the other 1930s and 40s totally. conversation. Uh, should they just be broken up because we've allowed them to get too big? Mm. So a lot of people raise this issue. They say, hey, if we had more competition, more real choice between our social media, there'd be an incentive for these companies to play, play, play well, like play better. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I know that seems intuitive, but one of the challenges is these are all what are known as network-based systems. So you go on social media, go on Facebook, because you, know, you can post a picture and your grandma's going to see it. If that new social media platform doesn't have you and grandma, you're not going to have that same incentive. And so I think this is a case where it's like the car companies. We need to have product safety rules. We need consumer rights, like the right to reset an AI algorithm, the right to get to make choices to consent when we use this, not just doom scroll till midnight. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But I, I don't think antitrust will be uh, a ma- the magic bullet we want it to be. Is any region doing this well or leading the way? Mm-hmm. I think I think the European Union has been uh, doing a good job of saying, hey, we can't have public democratic conversations about content moderation, about uh, misinformation, about uh, uh, kids' safety if we if we can't ask questions and get answers. Mm-hmm. And I-, I want the public to understand even very basic questions like how many moderators speak, you know, uh, French is a question that Facebook refuses to answer. So what, we need laws like that. Uh, we've been talking about Facebook. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I would love to get your assessment mm-hmm. about Elon Musk and mm-hmm. his handling of Twitter and where we are and where we're going with Twitter. You know, I, I, I feel like sometimes in the tech accountability space, I'm like the only person who gives Elon any positive words because um, I, I know that many people are frustrated with Elon because he came in and he's been very dramatic. But Elon Musk is the only person who's ever published a, uh, an algorithm that ran a social media platform before. He did that, and we should give him credit for those kinds of things. At the same time, he cut his safety teams. He is still an unaccountable single you know, CEO. You know, he's kind of like Mark Zuckerberg that way. We don't have appropriate governance. And he needs to open up transparency. And so I, I think he's a great illustration of when we have kings that rule our social spaces, we're not going to have democratic accountability. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Haugen, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Starting today, BC Cancer will be offering eligible patients the chance to receive radiation treatments uh, in Bellingham. Now, up to 50 patients per week could benefit from this program, uh, which would uh, take place either at the North Cascade Cancer Centre or at the Peace Health St. Joseph Medical Centre in Bellingham. Now, the Ministry of Health says that most of these patients will receive five fractions of radiation therapy, which would cost about $3,800 here at home, compared with 12200 at the private cancer centres uh, in Bellingham. Now, this doesn't include other expenses, such as travel and accommodations and meals uh, for caregivers. Now, the ministry says it's earmarked $39 million per year for the initiative, which uh, includes $5 million annually in contingencies as well. Now, while the decision by the province to send breast cancer and prostate cancer patients to the U.S. for faster radiation treatment is uh, being welcomed by some. Critics say it's an indictment of a flagging healthcare system that has not kept up with demand. It's estimated, get this, that half of BC residents will face a cancer diagnosis uh, in their lifetime. Joining me now to talk about this issue is a very well-known broadcaster and a cancer survivor as well, Tamara Taggart. Tamara, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. Yeah, good to see you. And I you know, I'm, I don't want to talk to politicians and I don't want to talk to experts. I do enough of that on the show. <laughs> but I want to talk to somebody who is very passionate about healthcare. Uh, and I know you are and certainly about uh, these cancer centers. Uh, first of all, your thoughts that today we can actually, mm. Canadians will be going down to Bellingham for treatment. Listen, I think that it's great that they can get the radiation they need now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That's not what we're talking about. I think it's a failure that we cannot take care of uh, British Columbians and their health care here at home, where Mm -hmm. they should be receiving their cancer care, not in a different country. And it is a different country. And you can say, oh, it's only Bellingham. It's so close for people who live in White Rock. Mm -hmm. Well, Who's saying all the cancer patients are in White Rock? They could Mm -hmm. be anywhere. I don't know how, I don't believe there's been transparency in deciding 
who and, you know, who will go and how they'll go and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's a failure. I think it's a failure that we are sending British Columbians out of the country for cancer treatment. Uh, there's no doubt the government is feeling some of that heat. As you know, they announced uh, new cancer centres for Nanaimo and Kamloops. Uh, and they say they have a 10-year plan, $440 million cancer plan, which they unveiled in February. Mm. Uh, you convinced that things will get better anytime soon? No, uh, definitely not. I, You know, cancer is not, it's not a new thing that came up. We've known about cancer for a long, long time. And we also know that if you live long enough, you'll probably get cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not a secret. We know, I think there's people in government probably, bureaucrats that study these things about, you know, how many people move here and how many people will. So I would think that if they've been doing their jobs, they would have an outlook as to what cancer care will look like in three years, five years, 10 years. And I would expect that somewhere down the line, Mm -hmm. governments have done that. I don't know. And if they haven't, boy, oh boy, we got some big problems here. You know, years ago, uh, I was uh, waiting to take a helijet over to Victoria and I ran into a healthcare minister and I said, well, what's the system cost? And at at that time, it was about $2 million an hour. Mm. And I said, how do you fix this? Because uh, in that time, BC liberals were in. And the, the, the health minister then said to me, you know, it's actually got to get worse before it gets better. I go, what mm. do you mean by that? He goes, until the federal government allows at least uh, innovation for the healthcare system, where they, they can experiment a little bit at the provincial level, because that's where healthcare is, this system will get worse before it gets better. Mm. And it's appalling that this is a private conversation with an yeah. elected official. And it, it was just shocking to me. Um, f- for you, when you, when you listen to Adrian Dix, and I think his, his, his heart's in the right place. This is beyond politics at the end of the day. I mean, it, what, it, we were having these conversations with the BC Liberals as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, listen, his heart's in the right place. Well, yeah, okay, sure. He's a human being. You know, we're all human beings. Adrian Dix is not going to go to Bellingham for radiation, I don't think. And I, I can't imagine that anybody in a place of privilege, right, mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. be driving to Bellingham. I mean, and that's what it all comes down to. I don't. I am sick and tired, and I think that there will be people listening that feel the same way, of us changing governments, going back and forth between the BC Liberals and the NDP, and hearing this and that about healthcare and this, and then blaming every. Like, what's the time limit on blaming the past government? Is it five years, six years, seven years? They're 10 past years? the best before today. I mean, I mean, come on. Adrian was saying that. Mr. Dix was saying that in the, my last interview with him. And look, every government does it. The Liberals did it as, as well. But we're all tired of it. We're talking yeah. about health care. Mm-hmm. And I learned from your show, I think, that you said it was, isn't it 42 cents on every do- a tax dollar goes to health care? Everything, yeah. I'm sick and tired of it. And so is everybody else. I want to know, and so does every other British Columbian, that if I get sick... I can go to the hospital and get the care I need. I want to know that my emergency room doctors are not writing letters to government saying, we got problems. How many, it's over a hundred doctors now have written a letter. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to know that if I go to the emergency with my son, that he'll be seen. Um, So we're tired of it. We don't care. There's no politics in it. I'm sick and tired of the minister of health telling us that everything's okay, because it's not. Mm -hmm. Maybe everything's okay in his world. Maybe he has a family doctor. Maybe, I don't know, but I can tell you, it is not okay right now. It is not okay if you go in a hospital. It is not okay if you don't have a family doctor. It is not okay if you have cancer right now in British Columbia. It's never okay if you have cancer, but add on like 
can't see an oncologist on time, can't get the care you need and have to go to a different country. It's an abysmal mess. And I think the most damaging thing about it is when we have a government that won't admit that it is a mess right now. I just want someone in government to say, you know what? Having cancer and having to go to Bellingham is horrible. And we're really sorry that this has to happen. It's terrible. I remember uh, it's been a few months now. You were you you tweeted something out about. I think you had some experience in emergency, mm-hmm. uh, and it may have been uh, one of your children. Mm-hmm. And you were just appalled by what you saw. Mm-hmm. And uh, my frustration is, I think we all want to fix this, and we're just unable to. And that's what I don't but, understand. But don't we have enough doctors? Don't we have enough healthcare workers that are saying, listen? This is how we fix it. Because I know a lot of doctors, and I'm sure you do too. Mm -hmm. Um, They all have ways of, like, all these emergency room doctors are like, this is what we need. And we have emergency room doctors saying we need, you know, whatever they are, like hospital assistants. I I don't know what the proper word is, right? I think they're called that. Why why can't we just listen to the experts? Because I'll tell you what, Adrian Dix is not an expert. He's a politician, all of the people in government, they are not experts. So the expert is the oncologist. The expert is the ER doctor for, or, or nurse or, you know, talk to them about what will work. We are so, we are so top heavy. Look at the PHSA. How many vice president, how many people do we need at the PHSA making $300,000 plus? Because I think the list is like in the dozens. So you think we don't need any more money? Like every year, like I don't care what government is, NDP, BC Liberal, whatever it is, every year we put more money into healthcare. Nobody ever mm-hmm. cuts healthcare. And it's always like the system is set up so that we run at 95% capacity pre-COVID. So mm-hmm. we're always at that level and we're always putting a little bit of money, money every time. We never have enough capacity. Mm-hmm. Add COVID to the issue. And the whole system blows up, and that's what's happening. Right. And when you say capacity, do you you don't mean physical buildings, right? I mean physical buildings. I mean HR, the amount of people that we have. But most of these hospitals, they're not even being used to capacity. For example, Some Children's Hospital, the brand new building that was built in 20, I don't know, 18, it's mm-hmm. not at capacity. There are many, many, many empty rooms in there, and they've never been used. It's well, Part of the challenge is just hiring enough people so it's a cost there for a cost driver for government we've built a lot of hospitals and i'm not talking about vancouver here mm-hmm, but you mm-hmm. go to smaller town british columbia where i'm from a lot of these hospitals were built in the 60s and 70s yeah. and 80s so now these capital costs that are coming mm-hmm. up economy grows at two or three percent a year there's only so many dollars you have so it's about picking your priorities richmond is a classic example they totally. announced it and a business plan and by the time they get a the a hospital it's going to be many years still before they get one. They'll get one, yeah. but that's the challenge that we have before right. us. Like, would you be willing to pay more or do you think we pay enough right now? Well, I, listen, if, if you were diagnosed with cancer or if you, were, if you have a serious health issue, you will go anywhere and pay anything mm-hmm. to get better. No doubt about it. You will do anything to get better. And so I think that, you know, with the announcement of Nanaimo and Kamloops, we already knew that was happening. They, they made these announcements about the approval. I mean, hello, PR 101, like we know what you're doing. It's like you're trying to distract us from the Bellingham thing. So buildings don't cure people, right? Buildings don't take care of people. People take care of people. So what is the long-term plan, the short-term plan for filling those spaces of the help that we need. I want to know that. And also, every hospital has a foundation. 
that raises hundreds of millions of dollars. And we donate this money, everyday people, everyday mm-hmm. British Columbians donate so much money to cancer care, hospital foundations, lottery tickets, you name it, right? Yep. And we expect that the government, the bureaucrats, will take care of our money, use it wisely, and get us the equipment and stuff that we need. And now we're sending patients to Bellingham. It, and now the BC Cancer Agency is trying to raise $500 million for a new building. It's like, that's a hard sell right now. We are speaking to Tamara Taggart, a well-known broadcaster, but also a cancer survivor as well. Tamara, we spent a lot of time talking about the system itself, but you know, you know it in a different way as someone who had to deal with cancer. Mm-hmm. Walk me through what that's like in regards to the, the system itself, but on a personal level, having to deal with this, with cancer itself as, as, as an individual? Mm. Well, I mean, it was terrible, obviously. And I nearly died because my, the type of cancer I had, which is a rare one, it's called a gastrointestinal stromal tumor mm-hmm. or a GIST for short. And um, it, it just, it, you know, it basically started to leak. It was on a slow leak. And so I was anemic for a long time and I just had a baby. And, you know, when you're anemic and you're a woman, everybody just says, oh, hey, women are always tired and women, you know, this is normal. And I was like, okay, it doesn't feel normal. Turns out it was a tumor that, you know, and it, I started to bleed out at home and I nearly died. And I was rushed to VGH and I received excellent care. It was an emergency situation. And my chemo, my treatment was a chemo drug that I took orally for three years. And it was hell. It's a terrible, uh, it's a great drug that it, you know, can cure you, Mm -hmm. but it's horrible the way it makes you feel. And so, you know, my cancer experience is very different than somebody going to Bellingham for radiation. Um, and everybody's experience is very different. Somebody can have the same type of cancer that I had and, you know, their experience would be very different than mine. And so I think that that's what we also have to remember when we're talking about cancer. It's not this sort of, we've almost become numb to, you know, because we have this awareness day and we have the ribbon for this and a Mm -hmm. ribbon for that and a a fundraiser and a run and a this, and it's like, oh yeah, we're just raising money for cancer. But it, it, when you hear those words... It is life-altering. And I will say, you know, I'm on the other side of it now. It never goes away from your head. It is always in your head that it's back or you feel something and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is it again. Or, you know, it's just always with you. It's always kind of like the shadow that's around. As hard as you try to not have it, it's always there. So when I hear a story or I hear the news that we're doing this, sending patients, I can, I just can't imagine, you know, being away from your kids or your husband or your parents or whoever it might be and having to go, what's happened, the, the demons in your head when you have cancer mm-hmm. are way more dangerous than uh, a lot of other things, you know? So the frustra- when I hear the, your frustration, I mean, you're speaking with great passion, but the frustration is visceral for you because you, you've gone through it. Yeah, and I've, you know, spent a lot of time You know, I spent a lot of time, years raising money for BC Cancer because that's the other thing. When you have cancer and you come out on the other side and you're so grateful, you want to help in every way you can. And so I immediately was like, I can't write you a big check, but I can volunteer. And so I did. And I, you know, helped raise a lot of money. And that's what people want to do. You want to find a way to give back. And and I think that's why this news and the the dismal state we're in with our health care and always hearing from our present government about how fine things are, 
you know, like, oh, these ER doctors, don't worry, we're dealing with it. No, I'm scared. Every day I think about my kids, like, what if something happens, something we have to go to the ER? Any parent does, right? Or if you have elderly parents, we're all worried. Yeah. Tamara, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you again. Good to see you. You uh, are hearing that intro music, of course, is the theme song for Succession. Uh, with the end of the critically acclaimed drama's fourth and final season, dedicated fans of Succession uh, now know the answer to the series' central question, which one of the Rupert Murdoch-esque Roy family siblings will prevail? Now, the whopping 88-minute finale on Sunday evening, uh, which concluded HBO's hit series, which chronicles a billionaire media mogul and his children's, uh, children's struggles to take over the family company. Uh, Waystar, Waystar Royko. Uh, turns out at the end of the day, uh, none of the Roy siblings won. Now in the episode, Shiv Roy, which is um, the daughter of the Rupert, uh, Rupert Murdoch-esque um, uh, lead actor, took one final turn against her brother Kendall, blowing up his plans to keep their late father's company and become CEO by voting to let their media empire be acquired by a Swedish tech giant. Uh, one writer has said Succession was such a successful successful show uh, because what it says about class, what it says about money, family, and trauma. None of these people were very good people, but at the same time, you're rooting for them. And in many cases, people have said this is what prestige TV is all about, spending money on TV shows that look more like movies. Think Game of Thrones, um, think Sopranos. Uh, but is prestige TV on its way out? Joining me now to talk about uh, the season finale of Succession and the issue of prestige TV is Rick Forchuk. He's a TV Week magazine columnist and a CKNW contributor. Rick, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here, Jazz. So what did you think of the finale? Well, uh, you know, I... I it's hard to think about. I'll tell you why. I know a lot of people have not yet seen it, so I don't want to introduce any spoilers. And yet it's hard to talk about a five-year-long show such as Succession uh, that is uh, deemed by many reviewers, critics, and uh, people in the business to be the best television show ever without talking about it in a little bit more, with a little more specificity. Uh, so what did I think of it? Um, I'll tell you what. And again, by saying this, it creates an expectation, perhaps, for those who haven't yet seen it. But it reminded me in some respects, especially in the fading moments, of the way The Sopranos ended. Hmm. And for me, that wasn't entirely satisfactory uh, with The Sopranos. And we had to wait for a while to hear from the producers of The Sopranos what they really meant. And I think Succession is kind of the same. So if, if you did see it, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it yet, I don't think I'm spoiling anything for you. Uh, but uh, for sure, this is the story, for those who might not be familiar, Jazz, uh, with a family, a media mogul family, which many people believe is uh, based on the Murdoch family. Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, his, uh, his children, uh, those hangers-on, the various people that want to inherit both his wealth and his power. And for the years of the show, the years that it's run, it really has been spectacular. Anyone that's worked in a business, uh, a media business especially, where family is a major component, recognizes that um, things happen that aren't normally mainstream. So what Succession has been, among other things, is a really well-defined soap opera uh, of the kind that we had from such series as Dallas and Dynasty, back in the 70s and 80s, when they were just the top end of television in terms of developing character and keeping people guessing as to what will happen. 
So I felt that way a lot about Succession, that uh, for its entire run, it was just an outstanding demonstration of how to build character, how to keep us off balance, and how to really demonstrate how wicked and evil families can be to one another, Jazz. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point you make at the end there. These people, at its core, when it comes to values and someone's ass soul, they're not likable people. And I think part of the success, in some ways, is that it was a, almost like a magnifying glass on class and what it says about money and family and, to a certain degree, even abuse as well. But these people uh, are not likable uh, in the obvious way. Uh, but at the same time, you're still rooting for them, even though may, they may be a tad despicable and, and hungry for power and money. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're seeing the same thing uh, on a similar series, not similar in terms of its theme, but similar in terms of its quality with Yellowstone, with Kevin Costner. And we have characters there who are, as you say, despicable and not nice people. And yet we find ourselves saying, yeah, you go for it. You go for it. You got it right. So it does tell us, I think, that in the real world, not the television world, in the real world, if this is a reflection as to what goes on, there are a lot of not nice people who do very, very well and some nice people who don't do so well and some folks who root for the right one and some root for the wrong one. But overall, if you're a person that has not yet Watch Succession. It will be streaming on HBO. Uh, that's via Crave TV. It'll be streaming for probably years. So you have an opportunity to get with the program now and stick with it for the five seasons and see uh, what real good television can be, Jazz. Uh, some have said that in many ways its ending is to a certain degree, perhaps not the ending of prestige TV, but probably the beginning of a new era where networks, especially streaming giants, are pulling back a little bit. While the competition is still there, um, there seems to be more of a focus on penny-pinching, and these shows are not uh, cheap to make in regards to actors, in regards to writers, and just the quality of filming, all of that. They're not cheap to make. What do you make of this sort of, not the end of prestige TV, but a different type of TV coming out after Succession? No, I think your point is absolutely right. It's very, very valid. And in the words of... Um, New York Times movie reviewer said that uh, things, we were at a peak maybe last year in streaming. We hit a peak, but the peak has peaked. And what changed things with Netflix announcing last year that uh, it had for the first time lost subscribers. That got the attention of the stock markets. It got the attention of Wall Street. It got the attention of a lot of folks who said, you know what? We may not be able to continue to throw this kind of money at television-type programs, streaming series. We're going to pull back. So that's exactly to your point, Jazz. I think that um, uh, the, the, the era of being able to pay this kind of money, which is movie star money. I mean, these uh, succession episodes were three, four, and $5 million per episode. And not very many years ago, that was a feature film. Uh, so the ability to just throw money at something, I think, will disappear because the business of the business is starting to take hold. And we will no longer see, I think, the great proliferation of shows because uh, in any given week for the last few years, it didn't matter whether you were talking about Amazon Prime or um, Paramount Plus or Netflix, uh, HBO. You had your choice of four, five, six, seven brand new TV series from which to choose. I think we're going to get down to maybe one or two, if that, because the economics aren't there and the economics are no longer working. Uh, part of it was COVID. 
Uh, part of it is now the writer's strike. But I think in the main, uh, the whole thing is the business of the business. And uh, when you have the stock market looking at uh, Netflix and all of its cohorts and saying, we think maybe your time has passed and we're going to pull in our horns a little bit, uh, that kind of challenge financially makes all the difference in the business, Jazz. That it does. Well, it was a great series and uh, it takes a little while to get into it. But once you're into it, uh, you certainly... Uh enjoyed every uh, single episode. Rick, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jazz. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.